Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the movie Funny Games. But we're also talking about friendship. John, not only are you a brilliant scholar and film critic, but you're also a true and dear friend. Here's to another 150 episodes, and happy birthday. Hello everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Horror Vanguard. My name is Ash, joined as always by... Hey everybody, it's John. It is very, very good to be here making some fresh new content for you all. And today is not just any fresh new content. This is John's birthday episode of the year. Happy birthday, John. <laughs> uh, well, I thought I should choose um, one that would reflect the, the, the kind of year that we've all had. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's have a really bad time as, as we talk about just, just a film where, where nothing good happens. Um, I'm very excited. It's going to be a fun episode. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't, um, I, I had seen the original some time ago, but I hadn't seen the remake ever. So, this film that you know we're not saying the name of yet, but you have already seen in the show title, uh, is pretty pretty good. <laughs> also, yeah, this is like the film for the year, isn't it? Um, yes, that's right. We are talking about um the 2007 film Funny Games by Michael Haneke, which is a shot-for-shot remake of the film Funny Games by Michael Haneke. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, obviously, obviously, as all of you are intimately familiar with um, European art house cinema, um, everyone already knows what Funny Games is about. Um, But for the few people who have not seen it, um, Ash... Uh, would you mind? Would you mind telling everybody what Funny Games is all about? Our eyes watch the Farber family as they drive to their deaths. We see them play a funny game, attempting to guess which handle composition plays on the radio, while we, through the ears of a god, hear the experimental noise of Naked City blast over the diegetic music. Their funny games are cut short by the funny games of Peter and Paul, who are playing a game of their own no less trite to its players than the Farber family game was to them. Meanwhile, we play Haneke's game, a game of media meta-commentary and a reaction of the media's depiction and treatment of violence. We play on all levels of this game and are judged for it. As we watch through the eyes of the god and listen through the ears of the divine, we pass judgment on Peter, Paul, and the Farbers. Our judgment is not fiery. It is that of a loafing, disinterested god. As Paul rewinds the film to save Peter and efface Anne's heroic attempt at a reversal, we are mocked by a greater divine. Paul the Apostle is twisted by this funny game and comes with a message of judgment from a power we thought ourselves beyond. So that thus it is. The natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit, and are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them 
as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold him up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. Join us as we play our own funny game on today's episode of Horror Vanguard. Mmm. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be this is going to be a good episode. <laughs> just just a, you know, just a little hellfire sermon at the beginning of our episode, I think to wake things up a bit. Yeah. No, no, no. I I see it. I think it I think it um I think it absolutely works. Uh, we are moviegoers in the hands of an angry god. We are indeed. <laughs> we, we are indeed. Uh, and that god's name is Michael Haneke. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably time that we, we enter a, a certain liminal and dangerous space. It is, of course, the, the formalist zone. Ooh, gotta love, gotta love that new uh, Twilight Zone inspired theme there. <laughs> that that distinct and non copyright infringing Twilight yes. Zone inspired theme. Uh, in- inspired by, but in no way related to <laughs> <laughs> the Twilight Zone. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about the formal elements of funny games, especially given that it's a shot for shot remake. It's Hanukkah remaking an earlier work of his. Um, where do you want to start with the, this as a as a kind of formal aesthetic exercise? Well, I guess I guess it, it might be worth it to ground our discussion in the fact that this is a this, this film is loosely inspired on real events. In 1924, two men uh, named Leopold and Loeb kidnapped a young boy named Bobby Franks in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, It was known as the crime of the century when it happened. Both of these men, like our protagonists, were incredibly arrogant and thought they had concocted the perfect crime and would never be caught. Spoiler alert, they were. And these events went on to inspire countless movies, Hitchcock's rope amongst them. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's good to just foreground that for what we're talking about is that this this film exists only because of an event that that was tragic in its day and has since gained a second life as something of a constantly resurrecting media phenomena. I mean, this is this is maybe taking us into the kind of meta commentary of the film a little early, but I think this is actually really important to flag up, which is the notion that there is a a, a dialectical relationship between, uh, or or at the very least, a parasitic relationship between media, mass media spectacle, and violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how that is theorized and understood is actually super important. You know, it's like um, the new Battlefield game developers are saying that their game about climate wars and refugee crises is not going to be making a quote-unquote political statement. So it's it's just it's just violent spectacle. It has nothing to do with anything real. Um, whereas a, a film like Funny Games, actually, I think destabilizes what we sometimes take to be a very clear-cut division between oh this is real and this is simply fictional weirdly enough like this is this is a formalist aspect of the film's meta discussion on on media and violence right that it's 
having this conversation while actively participating in the thing it's trying to critique. Yes, which we will we will get onto, I think, a little bit later. But there is one kind of really important formal element to this. Uh, and as always, we're, we're spoiling everything about the film. So... <laughs> So if you yeah. ask, <laughs> yes. uh, and with this film, with this film more than most, arguably, if you are someone who uh, does not like spoilers or uh, would really like the experience of watching this for the first time, I think it is important that we say, probably pause this right now and go watch the film first. But let's Actually, talk about... Don't pause it. Just turn the volume all the way down and leave our episodes playing on loop forever. Yeah. I that, think that's <laughs> probably the better way to do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're quite right. We've got to get those numbers up. Um, but let's talk about what this film does with its fourth wall. It breaks it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, no, so uh, toward, towards the climax of our movie, uh, so, so Peter and Paul are two uh, serial killers who have, I guess, uh, what the movie needs to be the unassuming identity of just two uh, collegiate yacht club types. Um, they, have, they have kidnapped, tortured, and killed members of the Farber family. Uh, and in, a, in a, heroic, a heroic moment, a twist, a reversal, and the mother of the family uh, grabs a shotgun and blows Paul to hell. Um, Peter, Peter not being particularly happy with this, grabs a remote control, rewinds the film back uh, about two minutes, and then plays it again, but this time he's able to stop Anne from reaching for the gun. He says to Anne, you can't break the rules. And, and, and like to, to be like, this is not set up anywhere in, in the movie in, in the slightest that that this is that this twist is coming down the pipe like even like the only like i'm pretty sure that the only bit of non-diegetic sound we even get is that little bit of naked city's bonehead right at the beginning of the of the movie you know like this movie is on a formalistic level this movie is like it's attempting to be very realistic and incredibly grounded in what it's depicting well i i think there are there are kind of <laughs> there are literally winks to the audience before oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. before we get to the scene, right? So it is not; it's never explicitly, it's never exposited, right? It's never, mm-hmm. but there are moments where one of the one of the really great things about this film, on a kind of formal and stylistic level, is the amount that doesn't happen on screen. Yeah. But like, there's a, some of the most actually all of the important action doesn't happen on screen. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is especially true of how it deals with violence, which we'll get onto in more detail in a bit. But throughout the film, there are a lot of questions that are either asked off camera, um, and you're not entirely sure who the, question, who the question is being asked of, or they're asked to the camera. Um, and increasingly, it becomes clear that uh, Peter and Paul specifically are talking to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get this this famous scene where um, we have the film being literally being rewound and the scene plays out again, but it, we get the ending that our serial murderers want us to get. Oh, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Because I, I know from its reception that a lot of people were actually kind of annoyed seeing this. 
for the first time? Um, so, so I think I, I talked about this with you a little bit uh, when we were talking earlier about the movie. Um, but this is the scene for me in the film. And I, I will go as far as to say that if we took out the uh, fourth wall breaking magic uh, reality reversing superpower, um, that this that this would be the film that a lot of the critics think it is. Yeah. You know, kind of an, an artsy, tortury. It would be it would be a much lesser film without that singular scene. Um I I loved it <laughs> up until we get to that scene. I'm like, oh, okay, like this movie, like, okay, I see what you're doing. You, yeah, all right. Like you're pretty interesting. Okay. But then you get that scene and it's just like, it is, it is such a testament to, to skill and vision and craft of, of a filmmaker to like, because you could have easily fallen down a little bit of a rabbit hole with that and, and had that be a reoccurring thing. Or oh, yeah. you could have you could have done something even worse and set it up. You, yeah. you you could have had you could have had Paul go like, hey, do you want to use your superpower or something? <laughs> oh god, no. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, and and, and the, the, the subtlety there, the the lack of setup, the the directness, the fact that it's never grappled with, it just happens. And and after it happens, none of our characters ever talk about it ever again. And it's done. You know, we, we never we never understand anything about that moment in the reality of the movie itself. And, and there's just the subtlety here is just a chef's chef's kiss. It, I think that's the important thing about this. It's an incredibly subtle film. Um, it, it in many ways, it demands uh, quite a lot of the people watching it. Uh, uh, I mean, often because in places it's really hard to watch. It's it's genuinely uh, upsetting. Um and a lot of that comes down to the the, the absolutely fantastic performances, um, but it it never the film never allows you to kind of like escape and have this kind of distance of fictionality, and it does super interesting things with hope, um, which this scene just blows up, and it's mm-hmm. it's 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 like you sort of go like I I admire the the kind of conviction. Where you go, we're not just going to break the fourth wall. We're going to completely, you know, we're not going to sort of like just winkingly nod to the audience. We are going to kind of systematically expose the sheer fictionality and constructedness of what we've done. And it's still going to hurt. It's still going to hurt you as an audience member. When you go, when we, when we pull back the curtain and go, none of this is real. It's still going to get you. And I think you're right that that takes an enormous amount of like talent to pull off in a way that's convincing. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, like I, we we're so focused in on this one scene here, but I think that it, it is this one scene that makes funny games. What funny games is. Yes. It's just so quickly and brilliant. And it's just so weird with a capital W and to never, ever address it or talk about it or, or to give the audience any time at all to think about it is, is just such like a that is, that is an all-in move on the part of Haneke and I think it's incredible <laughs> it's so good and it's 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 lead it's led up to so well because there are so many times where um like uh Paul has kind of just looked into the camera 
uh, and my favorite question before then is um, where he says, what do you think? Do you think they're going to make it? And he addresses that directly to the audience. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, I think, I think this brings up a whole bigger set of kind of, you know, meta ethical questions we can get into around in the early 2000s, what the function of violence in horror was. Um, yeah. and, and and the kind of investments... I mean, Carol Clover, obviously, has written about this in Men, Women, and Chainsaws back to the 80s. Like, why did people go and see the slasher movie? And we can, we can theorize the slasher movie, right? But anthropologically, people went because there was a cool spectacle. There was cathartic violence. It was, like, bloody and exciting. And then it right in the middle of an English-language revival of the slasher, which gets... Uh, unfairly and not helpfully termed torture porn somebody asks the audience what did you what you know what what do you think do you think they'll get out of it because that's the whole that's the whole kind of structural frame of the story right which is like you go and see this kind of film because you don't want people to get out of it but you want to be deceived into maybe wanting them to escape for a bit right Mm -hmm. yeah and then we have this ah oh, this glorious scene where uh, Haneke just goes, "You've known all along. You've known all along this was a story." Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's so important that Paul says you, you can't break the rules, uh, and it's just yeah, yeah, an amazing scene. I I think you're completely correct though that without it, this would be the film that all the critics dismissed it as completely yeah it, it would have it, it, especially because it's a remake of an earlier film it would have fallen into the pit that was like post 9-11 aughts kind of torture based yeah, yeah. horror cinema without this really engaging twist right at the ending mm-hmm. yeah so I have a question that I think will lead us into the rest of our discussion today and that is is this movie Seinfeld? <laughs> um, c- kind of? Y- yes? <laughs> I think the correct answer is yes, uh, so I will accept that. You get full points. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I highlight this juxtaposition. One, because uh, Haneke has said in interviews that this is a movie about nothing. Uh, Seinfeld uh, culturally is described as a show about nothing, right? The episodes aren't really about anything. There's just stuff that happens during them. Uh, and, and the parallel there, I think, is really compelling, right? Because if we, if we take both of these statements and we just believe them, right? And we, we don't actually pry them apart where it's like, no, Seinfeld's actually about a bunch of stuff. And so it's funny games. We look at the plot on this kind of surface level and we accept that. I, I think it's really interesting to juxtapose uh, the, the kind of latent violence that is necessarily a part of what Seinfeld is as a show. Mm-hmm. You know, the the unspoken agony that's that radiates in the background of every episode of Seinfeld. The, the, these things that are just like, they're just not discussed by the show, but nevertheless hidden in the background of it. Whereas in uh, funny games, like we have one particular type of violence that is incredibly foregrounded while all others are muted and, and left undiscussed. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole point is, um, why are they doing this, right? Why, like, what's, what's the reason? And 
like the the sort of nightmarish quality of the film is you know we don't, we don't really have one you know we we tend to want there to be a, a kind of motivating structuring reason for violence right we have the great origin stories of of like Michael Myers of Freddy Krueger of Jason Voorhees of of Leatherface all of that is to get kind of give coherence to the violence that they enact right we don't that's not the same thing as condoning it obviously but the 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 kind of great thing about this film is it just goes nope we're not going to give you that we're not going to give you that mm-hmm. struct that that structuring cohesive narrative that helps you to conceptually make sense of what you're seeing uh you have to do that for yourself which is exactly what people do with seinfeld mm-hmm. no no totally and like so much of seinfeld just picks up in media res we're just constantly dropping into the lives of our characters seeing you know what they're currently going through and then dropping back out mm-hmm. and and with this movie like it opens us it opens with us seeing our two killers as unbeknownst to us at the time in the movie you know the first time we see them they've already abducted and murdered members of one family and the movie ends with them starting the abduction and murder of another family yeah right the the, the whole the whole movie is in media res right we're just seeing a snippet this isn't the beginning this isn't the end this isn't even the middle this is just some unknown segment yeah it's 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 just it's just one part of that circle that you get to see um, and the ending of the film really undercut, like, like drives that home um, when uh, they sail across the lake and they find a new house mm-hmm. and, and use exactly the same ruse. Uh, and they're just going to be making their way down the lake. Uh, and there's just going to be a, a litany of corpses behind them. <laughs> so I think, I think this might be a good moment to leave the formalism zone uh, and enter the proper film discourse. Uh, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Sweet. So uh, who, who is this, this Michael Haneke? Uh, so um, Michael Haneke is um, Austrian film director and screenwriter and professor of directing at the, um, Vienna, I think it's the uh, Vienna art school, uh, the film, the film Academy in uh, Vienna. Uh, he, his, basically what Michael Haneke does is win the Palm d'Or. That's, 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 (laughs) that's basically what he does. Um, he's very good at making films about, um, kind of individuals experiencing alienation, like individuals caught up in kind of systemic or abstract forces, uh, there's funny games. There is cachet, uh, which is excellent. There is the white ribbon, which is um, has an absolutely enormous cast of like mostly children, and is set in Germany, I think, just after World War One, and is incredible. Um, he's 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 very kind of technical as a filmmaker. So there's lots of kind of self consciously referential cinematic language. If you watch interviews with him where he's talking about teaching, he says the job of the, of the film school is to teach you craft, right? The actual, h- how do you put together a story in moving images and sound? Um, and I think that's one thing that he's, he's actually really, really good at. It's never a- explicit, um, but it, it's, it's, it, 
all of his stuff is really it's it's really good basically it's he, he strikes me as someone who's very ethically engaged right some people think of him as kind of a in funny games in particular as like being a bit of a crank and talking like kind of wagging his finger and going oh you're also terrible for enjoying the spectacle of violence and i think that's super reductive but i think he is very interested in the ethics of representation or, or as he puts it in an interview the ethics of aesthetics um what what does that mean and what what are filmmakers uh, and actors doing uh, and how do and how are audiences implicated in that i think that is like a really fantastic introduction and i think that that, that last question there where it's just like uh, who who is this guy, right? Is he a crank who is um, kind of scolding us? But, but I think that you're right. That is, that is supremely reductive because he is in fact the person who created the thing that he's scolding us for enjoying. And I think that that is less interesting. You know, that, that's a bit of a dismissive response to just be like, oh, this is, it's just it's just a movie that's yelling at you for watching the movie that is made here. And I think if it, uh, per- perhaps in the hands of like a, a less skilled filmmaker, that's what this could have become. But I think it's much more interesting than that. Yeah, exactly. And I think we can get into w- what he's trying to do in Funny Games um, as, as, as we go through. Um, and I think a really good example of how this film is sort of misunderstood is in, the, like the trailer dropped, right, in uh, 2006, right? High point of the American revival of, of the slasher um, you know, it's this post 9-11 torture porn uh, mode of horror. Uh, and people are like, oh, Michael Haneke, art house god, making making a, a, a serial killer movie. This is going to be amazing. And the trailer plays that up. It's cut, it's cut kind of like a hostile movie, right? It's cut in the... The trailer is cut together in kind of the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what people get is this film... This film, which which literally rewinds itself some of the way through, this film which has like a static eleven minute shots of uh, of an actor sobbing on the floor. This this film, which uh, not only uh, doesn't just break one but two of the cardinal rules of horror films, which is by murdering a dog and a child. Um, <laughs> like. <laughs> There was this big, there was this big disjunction between what the, the trailer set it up to be and what the film actually was. Um, so let's, why don't we talk for a second about what what we mean by the context of like torture porn? And uh, I read a review of this, which at the time called it like art house torture porn. Um, maybe we can talk about that and why that is not really accurate or fair. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So largely, like the, this moniker of torture porn grows out of this post nine eleven horror cinema context, where we're seeing Saw become the dominant horror franchise for the longest time, and they're still making Saw movies to this day. The hostile films that you referenced, Human Centipede, mm-hmm. these movies that not slasher killers, not paranormal monsters, they they foreground human suffering. And, and typically a type of human suffering that is 
strangely analogous to the post 9-11 context right like the guantanamo bay pictures that came out right like the, the, these movies are all in dialogue with that um and then every, every now and like now we have this term torture porn and now if your movie is even like in the general ballpark of that there are going to be critics that paint your movie as torture porn and dismiss it immediately out of hand mm-hmm. yeah um do you think that this film fits that category? So I don't believe, (laughs) I don't believe in the category of torture porn. Um, I I don't think it's like, I don't think it's actually like describing anything, you know, like it's not, I, I don't think it's particularly useful either. Like it's, it's, it reminds me a lot of like, I feel like it's kind of the critics inverse of like elevated horror. You know, elevated horror That's, doesn't that exist. That is such a, that is such a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Like, elevate. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying this new thing where I accept compliments instead of brushing past them. Thank you. <laughs> um, but no, like, yeah, like elevated horror is a way for critics to make themselves feel better because they have then identified the horror movies whom star good. Uh, but that's not true at all. If, if our podcast in 100 and episodes has proven anything. It's that you can elevate literally any horror movie. There is no non-elevated horror. It's it's up to you, the critic, to do that lifting, or you, the fan, to do that lifting, right? You can elevate whatever movie you damn well please. And and I think like you you could put the torture porn label on anything, right? Like you know you you we we could call Halloween torture porn if we want. Michael Myers toys with some of his victims. He he has plenty of opportunities to kill them. He's doing psychological damage to them. You know, like we, we could go ahead and do that, but no one's going to because we accept Halloween as, as this hallmark of the genre, this iconic classic, this this very early clear slasher in, in I don't know, like torture porn ends conversations. I'm not into ending conversations. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a way of, of kind of morally dismissing something which should be reckoned with aesthetically. Yes. Um, I, I think Mark Stevens' term of splatter is much better and much more useful and more accurately describes a lot of those films from that kind of 2002 to 2008 window that we're talking about here. I was just going to say, and even if we want to like talk about films that are first and foremost about human gore, violation, uh, dehumanization, and violence... Uh, we have an analogous term. We have Gorno, you know, and I, and I think like that is a much more interesting and much more provocative term than torture porn. So we, we have, we have su- such a beautiful palette, such a wide palette in, in horror cinema discourse to draw from. Like, I think we can, if we, if we all collectively will hard enough, we can, we can focus our energies and banish torture porn into the nether realms where it belongs. Yeah, and like, even in the context of going, okay, it's not a helpful term, but maybe it refers to a kind of group of films with a few kind of commonly associated aesthetic markers, lots of violence, uh, lots of like on-screen bodily disintegration, that kind of thing. Uh, there is very little on-screen violence. In fact, there's 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 none there's no on-screen violence uh, right? in funny yeah. games. I mean, yeah. Okay, there's, like one, the there's full, one instance. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, the, but, but, but that one instance gets taken back. <laughs> so. 
So it's like this is this is not uh, this is not really a film about the spectacle of violence. This is a film about, in many ways, the ethics and psychology of violence. So I I, I just don't think that it's accurate or or kind of fair to call it that. You know. No, I I, I completely agree. All right. Well, we've been we've been kind of dancing around it. Should we talk about this rewinding scene then? Yeah, uh, we, we we have to revisit this outside of the formalism zone. <laughs> Uh, you pointed out something to me before we started recording about uh, the rewinding scene. Uh, and I think you you raise an interesting question. Uh, okay, so so in in this kind of famous scene, right, where where uh, our protagonist literally grabs a remote, rewinds the film, and reminds us that that these rules cannot be broken here, right? We've all strapped into an experience and it's going to complete. Uh, we we get a close up of uh, the the killer pushing a button on a remote control to rewind the film, and uh, he does not push the rewind button. He pushes the volume down button. I I think that whether whether this is a revealing mistake uh, or this is done intentionally, I think we can have some really interesting con- conversations on the fact that we're pushing volume down and not rewind. Uh, okay, so what does it mean if this is a mistake? See, I, I think I, I think we can come to like really interesting conclusions, regardless of if it's intentional or not. Because as we're talking about, you know, like in in the end of the movie, the two killers are having a conversation about like the meaningful difference between the fictive and the real. And I think that this is a great example of that because regardless of if it was intended or not, it is now part of this extant body of work, right? It's now part of the movie that we're viewing. And yeah. I think that it, it calls into question, one, our assumed beliefs, right? Because like, you know, unless you cheated like me and read the IMDb a page ahead of time or like <laughs> were an eagle-eyed viewer, like you would have just assumed that he, uh, he hit rewind. You know, you would have just assumed that he hit the button that causes the effect that we know is going to happen, right? So, so we're we're now having our assumptions about what controls media being called into question, right? It's not actually the person holding the rewind button. It's this much larger construct. It's this much larger apparatus that's actually in control of the piece of cinema or the piece of media that you're being exposed to. Mm, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. And in, in a way, if it's deliberate, the whole point is, well, it doesn't matter, right? You mm-hmm. st- you, you're still kind of, oh, he, did, he, didn't, he didn't accurately break the fourth wall. <laughs> meh, meh, uh, plot hole, ding. Ding, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's, and it's like the whole, the whole point is to go, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, you, you signed up to the experience. You know how these go. So this idea of like, it, gen, like it, it doesn't matter, right? It's, 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 it's something, it's a bit of visual information for your eyes to have that will, that allows the whole thing to remain coherent. We don't just, we don't just kind of cut. It deliberately rewinds, right? It doesn't just jump cut backwards. It makes you sit and watch it as, as a p- bit of visual narrative. So uh, either way, whether it's deliberate or not, it's it's about disempowering the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
and I think so part, part of the kind of tension and horror of that scene is we realize that Anne's character is just a her, her identity is constructed you know and not not in the, the the sense that like yes our all of our identities are socially constructed through various interactions of experience and power and history and whatever but hers is literally constructed by someone else's will right it's it's, it's uh Haneke, it's the it's it's our protagonist it's the writer it's the script it's the filmmaking it's all of this stuff that, that is in control of who she is but uh, as as a character you know, and, and the actor, right, that plays her in this role, right? All of these things are actually controlling this this being that we're watching. But the the hitting of the wrong button and, and our expectations therein and our false belief that he hit the right button or, or the fact that we probably didn't even think about it at all. You know, he just grabs the remote and things start to rewind. We probably didn't like think because the movie never calls question to like, oh, is it a magic remote or something? <laughs> um but but that reminds us that we're also just like Anne constructed and part part of much larger systems, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I I really like this idea of of understanding that scene as basically going your naive hope that maybe uh, there was some hope for Anne, which is just. It is is literally impossible to fight against. You know, you're you're passive as an audience member. You've you have given yourself over to something, and that's the, that's the point. I think that Hanukkah is trying to get you to mm-hmm. think about what does it mean to be a spectator, and at what point does spectating merge into complicity. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that uh, so Peter needs to grab a remote in order to, to rewind time, and, and I mean, like, we'll never know why, because that's not important. You know, is this is this a magic item he needs to focalize his uh, reality-warping Marvel mutant psychic powers through? You know, it doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that at any moment in this experience, we could have grabbed the remote and done the exact same thing. Or we, we could have gone further. We could have hit stop. Yeah. You know, like like if this film was really objectionable to the senses as as a spectacle of torture porn gone too far and invading the space of the art house, you could have not watched it. You could have stopped watching it. You could have not reviewed it. Yeah. You know, like th- there's so much choice and power in the hand here. And, and Haneke is calling into question our, our lack of use of it by having one of his characters just do it. <laughs> yeah, right. This, you know, because... Paul's first reaction is to is to laugh about it, mm-hmm. and yeah, why? Because it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter because you can just rewind it and you do the scene again. It is the glue. It's the one scene piece of glue that holds the whole movie together. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I think without without that scene, the whole thing would just be so much more basic. Uh, and with it, it kind of unlocks the entire film, and you go, oh, yeah. oh, oh, like it, it's, it's sort of like, I, I really like this film because I actually think it's going to help me watch films better. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it like it just sort of unlocks the whole thing. So you go, oh, that opening third where nothing really happens and it doesn't seem to have very much point was deliberately done. <laughs> like you know, this was, this was because. It's all about making 
you know, it's like the 20 minutes or 30 minutes before the killers turn up. That's that's what this was all about. Really, there's this uncomfortable closeness that's that's being built between us as audience members and Peter and Paul. Like, yeah, that that whole rewinding scene is the key which opens the film up to actually being a super interesting text. I completely agree. <laughs> it goes without saying at this point that I just agree. Um, so do you, do you want to talk about jazz for a little bit here? Oh yeah. I, I would love to talk about jazz. <laughs> this is a, this is a musical movie we're watching today. Uh, it, it really is. Uh, let's, let us turn this, uh, in, uh, into the jazz vanguard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where's where's Labor Kyle when we need him? I mean, like this feels like the the thing, you know. We we need him here to talk about Naked City, but we're gonna make do. Okay, why are we talking about jazz? Okay, so uh, as we talked about earlier at the beginning of the movie, our our family, the Farbers, are. Uh, listening to some Handel composition and uh, the the father and the mother trying to guess what it is, right? Um, And they're they're playing a funny game that you would play on a car ride with the family. You're trying to, oh, name name that tune in one note or less, you know? Like they're they're having a bit of fun. Uh, The second their car stops, the music immediately cuts to Naked City. Uh, Naked City is... I would describe it as like experimental composition for a jazz grindcore band. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's uh, like it's, sh- shout yeah. out to the to the absolute mad genius that is John Zorn. Oh yeah, like the the stuff is just like it's so good. The album Grand Guignol, uh, I think, is maybe my favorite of Naked Cities. But like the the music is it's it's weird, it's threatening, it's constantly changing. It calls into question your expected beliefs about music and the direction of musicality and what a song is supposed to be and how a song is supposed to be organized. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's direct parallels to draw here, right? And like grindcore is also a very violent genre. Naked City invokes a lot of violent disgusting graphic imagery and concepts and language in in their music and i think that that but they're doing it in this like incredibly high-minded artsy experimental uh framework and i think that that's it plays really nicely off of the film yeah what if naked city is what if napalm death got super into um like john coltrane <laughs> that that's what naked I'm city is <laughs> I'm, here, I'm here for it i've always said that coltrane's music needed to be really 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 hard and maybe 30 seconds long per song at the most <laughs> that's 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 what it's that's what it's like and it's it's uh violent it's discordant it's jarring um and it's 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 incredibly aggressive um, and it matches the film not in aesthetics but in affect and mood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because really aesthetically, this film is is very clean, very classical, very kind of like uh, the environment and our participants are you know upper middle class East Coast Americans, um, 
you know, the, our prep school wasps. And then as a soundtrack, you've got this like furious barrage of noise, which is just, it's just so good. I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I think it also calls into question our beliefs on media and violence and where violence is situated in media, because we tend to instantly code violent media as being like low class or not artistic, right? Uh, which is super untrue. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes like Guar is a great example of this. You know, Guar is an incredibly art forward band, right? Like they are, you know, for lack of a better term right now, experimental artists. You were talking about Guar. Yes, yes. And oh my God, can you believe that we have been recording for nearly 50 minutes already? I know, we're going to have to speed run the rest. We haven't even gotten to golf and ethics yet. Uh, um, br- brace yourself, everybody. Okay, you were talking about Guar. Yes, so so uh, I mean, like, we, we tend to use violence, or violence is used discursively as a way to code particular pieces of media as being low class or not meritous of artistic discourse, right? Um, Ten Commandments, Charleston Heston's Ten Commandments. We wouldn't call that a violent movie, even though it's incredibly violent. A whole truckload of people die. People are thrown into the fiery pits of hell. There's brutal stabbings and murders and like very violent film. But we would never talk about it like that because it is a high watermark classic of cinema. You know, and, and we can we can do this forever. You know, people don't even really describe Psycho as being a violent movie even though it's just literally a movie about a serial killer, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a proto slasher. And like, so the, the use of these terminologies has its own meta discourse that's going on, right? Like, and like Guar, funny games, naked city, they're all great examples of music and artists that, you know, press down on that border between, you know, how we use the language of violence and what is art. Yes, precisely. And I think that's why uh, using the John Zorn tracks on the soundtrack is so interesting because it it del- it creates this dissonance between the diegetic and non-diegetic worlds, right? And that friction is actually useful for what the film is trying to do as a whole, I think. I agree. I, I think that's pretty great. So do you want to talk about this movie being meta? Yeah, okay. So here's a question. What does it mean for a film to be meta? Oh, it's so meta. What What are they actually talking about, in your opinion? Um, I, I would say there are two uses of meta. And, and I would think that... I think there's a, there's a there's the popular context where it's a recogn- it's recognizing that the film is commenting on something... Uh, and that something could be literally anything or it's it's uh, intentional on the part of the filmmakers, you know, like the film is a meta commentary on subject is often thrown out when filmmakers are actively courting that dialogue. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And the other aspect to it is films which are reflexively self-aware about their own. Mm-hmm constructed nature like the really classic example is people talking shit about horror movies in horror movies yes you know, that's that's yes. a classic kind of like metatextual nod 
Um, and I think there are, there are ways in which you can do that really well. Uh, but I think quite a lot of the time it can just be like, oh, here is a reference to another thing that you recognize, right? That's the sort of, um, and to me, the best example of this is the film that um, Funny Games is very closely related to, uh, which is, of course, Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods. Because um, <laughs> uh, they both do the same thing with their credit sequence. So it's clearly indebted to, like, both have a pair of manipulative killers who are controlling events behind the scenes, really. Um, but a lot of the time, I think Cabin in the Woods falls into the trap of kind of going, oh, look, here is another thing that you recognize. Here is here is a thing that has been in other horror movies. And it doesn't necessarily kind of subvert any of the tropes. It just sort of indulges in them. Uh, whereas I think Funny Games actually subverts the tropes of horror film and and filmmaking generally, rather than just going, oh, look, here's, here, here's a reference to Psycho. Uh, or, <laughs> you know, I, do, you, do, you think that, do you think that comparison holds up? I mean, I think it's completely accurate. I mean, like when we look at Cabin in the Woods, right, it, it, it is all the classic questions of horror movies, right? Why don't they run away? Oh, there's like a, there's a magic technology barrier around the forest that prevents them from leaving, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, why, why is there always kind of like, the bimbo, the jock, the nerd, you know, like the, these archetypes. It's like, uh, oh, because they have to be there, you know? And, and it, you, we have this like loose frame narrative of like it prevents the rising of Cthulhu or whatever. But I think it, in funny games, it's much more powerful, right? Because I, I think I think Cabin in the Woods, you're right. It's, it's just references, but it also pulls its punches. Y yeah. You know, like the, the the idea that there's like a secret cabal that's pulling levers and, and controlling the like horror movie thing and that it's like this weird working environment. That stuff is interesting in Cabin in the Woods. But then like to put it all in service of an in-universe god is it, pretty tired uh, for an and, ending. And also it has no subtlety, right? It would never yeah. be able to it would never be able to do the thing which Funny Games does, which is introduce that half an hour into the film. <laughs> Right, which would have been it would have been so much better if it would have been like an hour or half hour into the movie, and then we realize that we're in this weird situation, and it wasn't just a generic cabin in the woods type movie. Um, the, but, but the yeah, moment, yeah. The moment that I think really exemplifies this, right, is there's um, and kind of reveals that I think cabin in the woods is is actually very cynical towards its audience. Is we know that they're going to be killed. And then two of them go off into the woods to have sex. And we have this kind of stereotypically staged 80s style sex scene. And it cuts back to the guys who are controlling it. And they go, well, you've got to give people what they want. Which is like, we've got to see the girl get a top off. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you're not, you're just indulging in the trope, right? You're not undercutting it in any way. You're not forcing the audience to reflect on themselves. And there's, there's a really, really unpleasant scene uh, in this film with Naomi Watts where they say yeah. right, you've got to take your clothes off and in the hands of a lesser director this would be like a kind of cheap titillation moment of like we're gonna we're gonna see gonna see Naomi Watts toplet but it's like camera never pans down mm -hmm. uh, and like you were made to 
kind of actually assess your own status as a viewer. And the whole thing is over in a second as well, because almost as soon as it happens, Paul goes, okay, okay, uh, put your clothes back on, it's done. So it's like, that's, that's, that's the difference, I think, between just kind of indulging and restaging a trope so that somebody goes, oh, look, they're doing the thing, and then actually going, okay, how do we undercut the expectations of the audience to make them reflect upon themselves and their own status and their own involvement with this text. I, I completely agree. I, I mean, like, in, in the fact in that scene, too, the, like, the, the camera keeps us eye level with Anne's character. Mm-hmm. You, you know, so we're, we're from the perspective of the killers, but we're looking into her eyes, so we're connecting with her emotionally. Yeah, you know, I, I think, like, that's so much better. And you're right, like, for the, for the rest of the movie, right, where, where she's, she's in her underwear... Uh, for a good portion of it, like we don't get the the kind of voyeuristic male gaze cinema, right? Yeah. That that cabin in the woods would have leaned into, right? We get very flat, uh, kind kind of like I want to say objective, but we get like these naturalistic shots, and and it and it does challenge your relationship to what you're watching, right? And it challenges these tropes and conventions. And I think you're completely correct in that Cabin in the Woods is mean spirited or, or something, you know? Like it, it's it's yeah, it's like so an episode often, of Family Guy. It's just a bunch of references to stuff. Because so often Cabin in the Woods is going, huh? This is what you wanted, isn't it? This is what you went to, a, you know? Look at you getting, you know, getting into the violence of it, and it's like. Uh, funny games is is much more is much more subtle and is much more complicated than that because the a lot of it comes down to like subtleties of performance and like Naomi Watts is amazing in this movie. Um, and Naomi Watts like all of them are great and um, Devin Gearhart who plays Georgie the kid is like maybe the one child actor who doesn't really annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, like so, it, a lot of it comes down to like subtleties, like expressions and pauses, and there is, oh, it 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 draws you in. And I found I found this this much more kind of psychologically complex than something like Cabin in the Woods, which is ostensibly much more metatextual. And, and I think another important thing here is that like Cap- Cabin in the Woods is like. It's playing under the guise of appealing to like an an educated horror fandom, right? Oh, pause on the chalkboard scene. Can you name all those references? Oh, we're in the basement. Can you point out all of the horror movie references? Oh, we're running through the the complex. Do you know all of these horror movie monsters? And it's it's this kind of blase iconography. It's just dumping a like uh, it's going it's going to like the the used DVD store to the horror movie section and just dumping it on you. You know, mm-hmm. and just being like, you you like that little piggy? Here's all your horror. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 you like that? You like, like here's here's your slop we're ladling out for you. Right. Yeah, it, and it's 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 like it I think it wants to be this send-up to Cabin in the Woods wants to be uh airplane, um, but for horror movies, right? It wants to be the thing that like scary movie was never really able to achieve. Mm-hmm, it yeah. wants to be that like uh, slapstick, self-referential parody comedy film that that kind of died out with like 
spy hard and naked gun and a little bit of Austin powers and that kind of thing. But it, it just like, there's a cruelty to cabin in the woods that weirdly is not present in funny games. Yes. Even though it is funny games is full of very cruel people often doing incredibly cruel things. And speaking of, uh, the cruelty of man. Let's talk about golf. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's that's easily the best segue I've ever done on this show. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners. You've reached the end of side one of today's episode of Horror Vanguard. If you're listening using analog media, please take this moment to flip your vinyl disc over. If you're listening using more contemporary digital and ethereal formats, our conjurations will handle such transfers for you. Now, on to side two of today's episode. Golf. Golf. Let's. What is, I, I have a question for you, Ash. What is this? What is this? It's a golf ball. That's oh right. yes, it's it's a golf ball. And yes. A, and Ash, why do I have it? Uh, it's it's because you didn't hit it. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> and of course, uh, I have it because it is an emblem of a certain class and economic position that directly links back to the uh, ethical and moral and actual violence that, that, that golf embodies. Uh, golf is bad. This is my hot take. Um, golf is bad. It's, it's an incredibly noxious uh, blight on our cultural uh, imaginations. It's an incredibly inefficient use of land. Uh, it's tied up in the worst kind of conspicuous consumption. Uh Golf is bad, so it's the perfect sport for Peter and Paul, right? Oh, I, I completely agree. This is an anti-golf action podcast. Uh, all, all golf are bastards. Uh, indeed they are. Um, take, t- take all the land that golf courses occupy into public ownership immediately, rewild them, uh, use them for growing food, use them for helping to repair some of the damage that we've done to uh, the the Earth's biome uh, down with golf. Yes. For, for, for so many things, I'm like, oh, there's some redemptive elements in this, you know, like like the, the, the seeds of a utopian present exist within the sorrow of this moment. But no, golf, golf is a is a living blight. Yes. There is there is all, all golf equipment needs to be confiscated and melted down into farm implements. Yep. Uh, we, we need to uh, burn the collective memory of golf from from the human experiment. Uh, all of this is true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to our new golfing podcast, uh, the Golf Vanguard. Oh, that's the worst thing I've ever said. That Ooh, just came no. out. No, no um, one run with that. But I have to be honest, this film also features maybe my favorite use of a golf ball ever, <laughs> which is... Um, it's after they've left the house after that incredible like 10 minute shot of uh, Anna George and um, George is trying to get the phone to work and all you see like and you, you as an audience member you, like the seeds of hope start to kind of emerge and all you see is the doorway and just a golf ball rolls into frame and it's just, it's the most sinister thing. 
and it's so upsetting. Um, <laughs> I love it. It's great. Yeah, I think the the use the use of golf, the use of golf ball, the fact that golf is kind of the the vehicle for our two serial killers entering the movie. I think it's just like it's so fantastic, especially for what golf is just like conceptually like especially like every every golf course is just like rich people laundering money in in like communities not doing public i know so many small and medium cities in the united states where golf courses spring up as ways to not use land to help people live <laughs> uh yeah the like and also Golf courses are like staggeringly environmentally inefficient. The amount of oh, yeah. resources it takes to get golf courses to look the way they are um, is just mind blowing. And this is especially noxious in like if you have a golf course in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, you, no. <laughs> Out of all the environments where you shouldn't have an extended plane of well-kept grass, the middle of the desert is probably the top of that list. Uh, absolutely, I, 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 I don't understand the appeal. I don't I don't think. Okay, so here's a question: How do you think? How do you think golf ties into the wider kind of class discourses that are happening in this film? So. One of the things that I find to be really interesting in this movie is the type of violence we're focalizing here, right? Like, uh, the movie is very concerned with this type of media violence, right? Like, it's in and of itself inspired by the, the crime of the century in 1924, right? Like, like this, this movie is all about how the news talks about real-world violence and, and depicts and uses real-world violence, Um and what's what's really telling about that is that like yes th- th- those events are very tragic those those events need to be taken seriously and respected and and you know all, all of that however um there's greater violence that the media turns a blind eye to and i think golf is such a perfect vehicle for this discussion right like golf can't exist without rampant capitalism, environmental collapse, colonialism, white supremacy, like all of these things are structurally interwoven into like what golf is, the land that gets turned into golf courses, right? Building golf courses in the middle of the desert, diverting like natural resources, like tons of water and in in communities full of like drought and water shortages and we're still watering fucking golf courses. Like it's 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 baffling, not not even to get into yet the class coding of the sport, and like the media will never ever ever do an expose on golf that treats golf as if it's on par with the horror of like two serial killers in a suburban neighborhood, and and arguably like how many people die each year because we have to sustain golf more than we sustain human life, and I think that that's uh, one of the, the the contrast the film is teasing. What about um, you? Yeah, completely. I completely agree, actually. And I think it's 
there's something about there's something about, about golf which has always struck me as sort of supremely pointless. Um, I I don't know maybe 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 I I just don't get it as a sport, but it, there's isn't there there's something sort of like this great engineering and geological and and land based uh, movement this kind of transformation of land, you know building golf courses in the desert. It's like oh what could we do with this space? Uh, let's I don't know let's turn it into gentle rolling slopes that we'll cover with. Um, hugely resource intensive non-native grasses uh this there is something so so kind of like empty and and purposelessness purposeless about it um which i think does directly tie into this kind of bigger question i think one of my favorite scenes that sort of really illustrates this is when they're giving this kind of contradictory backstory to um paul is talking about peter and he's trying to explain why they're doing this. And he's like, you know as well as I do, like everything I've just told you, you know as well as I do that that's not true. And then he, he kind of goes, what, you think he's white, tra white trash? Uh, and it's like, no, of course you don't think that because he's there to play golf, right? It's, it, it's, it's this hollow, empty, performative hobby that doesn't really do anything. There's a kind of ontological void about it. <laughs> And it's it's also like a, a fundamentally alienating game in in such a bizarre way because like we have games like solitaire right whereas the name implies you play it alone you, you know but like solitaire is mobile right like it's it's designed to be a game where you pass time you know and, and just contemplate whereas like golf golf is a social non-interactive game which is just the strangest setup you know golf is is like less interesting croquet which is a powerful statement i feel but i think you're i think you're completely right with the like golf being this it's it's an ontological hole in in our society right i think like it it is such the perfect embodiment for every literally everything that's wrong with the world in which we live the fact that you and I both live in societies where teeth are luxury bones and like golf courses will never, ever, ever not be taken care of before people's teeth. And it's just, uh, it's and, and like, like, because, because of the fact that like, like to go back to croquet, like if you want to play croquet, you just get yourself some of those little metal gates you get yourself a wicket or two you go pick up a mallet and some little wooden spheres you know like you could buy a croquet set for next to nothing and then you you could slap that bad boy together at any park any field near you it's mobile right the the, the game of golf necessitates a massive heap of land dedicated and purpose-built and usable for nothing else it's it's effectively it's a parking lot for the leisure time of the wealthy and that, that yes, in and of itself absolutely. necessitates absolutely. Yeah, so much class violence, right? You, you can't, you know, do a startup golf course in the middle of a densely populated urban environment unless you also want to displace a bunch of poor people in the process. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's, it's, it's deliberately become this, you know, capitalism has territorialized it. Traditionally, it, it's, it has its roots in 
working class communities, especially in Scotland. Um, and it's become it's become just a way of it's become an example of conspicuous consumption, right? And of course, it's it's tied it in in the politics of land like irreducibly. You can't get around with you can't get around. Oh that. yeah, yep. Um, basically, a golf is horrifying, uh, and symbolically entirely appropriate for a film about uh, nihilistic monsters coming into your house to torture you to death. That's that's entirely appropriate for this film. Yes, one one hundred million infinity percent golf. Golf is just the worst, the worst possible thing. Ugh. So, do you want to talk about motivation? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling wanna, motivated for this conversation. Maybe a little bit more. more more about that scene where George asks them why why are you doing this uh, and uh, Paul says what, why are we doing this he asks that to Peter and Peter says it's hard to talk about and we get this long contradictory uh, self justification narrative I wanted to know what you thought about that scene where uh, Peter and Paul are asked why they're doing this and they offer this kind of contradictory backstory that's supposed to kind of explicate or or uh, justify their actions. You know, um, Paul talks about Peter being, you know, r- raised in a, in, a, in a troubled home and uh, has, a, um, uh, has a drug problem even. So, yeah, I wanted to know what you thought about that. So, so the I think the obvious and first interpretation is is to compare and contrast that with the apparent class background of both killers and the people they're going after, mm-hmm. right? They they dress like yacht club, you know, boys. They 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 talk with this kind of upper class, like cultural framework in mind. You know, they're 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 clearly like being coded in so many ways as wealthy you know, established young socialites. Um, and even, even their ruse when, when people, when they have to unexpectedly meet people outside of the family that they're currently, uh, you know, like torturing is, is to incorporate themselves into some kind of like class mobile framework, you know, oh, they're, they're colleagues of, of a friend's father's firm, you know, like they're they're always built into the system and into these expected roles. And so I think that that contrast is interesting, right? Because we don't expect, like culturally, the media teaches us to, to expect a certain set of uh, like cultural icons when we're talking about serial killers, you know, <clears throat> like, like, uh, like me- mental health issues, drug abuse, broken homes. Like those are the things that the media likes to talk about when we talk about crime. You know, and whenever it's someone not from those backgrounds, it's, oh, it's an unexpected tragedy. You know, how could this have ever happened? Like all, all of that stuff, right? And I think that's that's the dialogue we're teasing out here. You know, the fact that like the, the, the next time there's like a white mass murderer, the, the news is going to use a picture of them on a fishing trip, you know, and like... Oh, yeah, yeah. That is, that is the discourse that we're having with, I think, this apparent backstory because the backstory is just a total fabrication but it fits in with expected narratives yeah uh i think that's really important right there's this there's this tendency to go uh, we talked a little bit about this previously this idea that there is a kind of structuring 
cause that happens that 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 doesn't condone but explains violence and yeah i think i think in this case it's exactly tied into this idea of oh he he was just a uh he was an, he's from a nice nice a nice background he was just quote unquote troubled um or the the kind of inverse is oh it's only people who come from you know uh come from poverty or who come from a background of of um substance abuse or drug addiction that that would ever do this kind of thing and this film just goes well no some it, it raises a really interesting question about how and why we think certain acts are uh performed by certain people there is a lot of a lot of tension and a lot of um attempts of trying to kind of go well here's what's going on really but they constantly undercut it they constantly undercut it all the way through yeah yeah no i i think that's that's such an important thing to highlight in the in the context of this movie because it part part of the dialogue that's going on here is is you know we're through the text of this film, directly confronting real sources of violence mm, and, yeah. and where violence really comes from. And like, it's, it's a well-established fact that in, individuals with any kind of mental health, you know, like disorder problem issue are much more likely to be the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators of violence, you know, but like it, you wouldn't, you would never know that looking at like your standard media narratives about who commits violence and why. And of course, our characters have their own. I really do think that that line of um, Paul, where he goes, "What you think he's, you think he's white trash," as if as if that would somehow explain or excuse everything. And it kind of goes, George and Anne may have this kind of very bourgeois view of violence, right? Oh, it's only people who are from this background that will do these kind of things, right? And they go. You know, if anything, they're, they're more economically secure and prosperous than the people they've decided to pick on. Oh, yeah. Like, like most assuredly. I mean, like this this movie, I think, for very important reasons, is not interested in, like, giving a background to these two. And I think that that's very important for the kind of, like, ongoing discussion of this film, that that their their, their background is completely open it's it's open-ended but one of the things that's really interesting to me is like like in, in that moment like i think you kind of realize that like it, it not would not be shocking at all to find out that these two are like the sons of a senator or something you know oh yeah that to- they have a hundred percent a hundred percent yeah that their their crime there's there's a carte blanche that they have for their crimes in, in a way that's backed up by a power even greater than these like ex-urban upper middle class wealthy individuals with these lakes lakeside homes you know uh yeah and i think i think this raises kind of the next question to talk about which is how and this is maybe the biggest thing this film raises which is about the ethics of representation particularly around violence um and what the relationship is between violence and ethics um in 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 horror movies in movies generally um what are your thoughts where where do you want to kind of start with this i think hmm i think we've kind of already started this conversation by like picking apart 
the class background of our of our two killers, right? Because when you look at like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy, you know, like our 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 standard killers, right? Like they all have this this clear working class identity as their background, right? This fits into a larger cultural meta narrative that we're having. Um, you know, like the, the same even like going into like modern modern situations, right? Like Scream. Uh, to continue with the Scream Killer, very intentionally looks like it's wearing a bad horror movie Halloween costume, right? Like going going further, like to, to contrast this with Saw, you know, as some as some critics I think woefully did, but like there, there's an interesting parallel here too because like Saw happens in those discarded and forgotten industrial neighborhoods, right? Like Saw has that black tower element where there's all these buildings where we don't know what's going on inside of them, we don't know who owns them, what they're there for, what they do. Um, there's so much of our communities that are hidden. And then this is happening in like, you know, the like a lake district kind of place. You know, it's happening yeah. in this very upper class area. And I think in a way this movie is trying to like invert expectations on the sources of violence inside of horror. And I think it's trying to do it in a way which, um, as, as we said when we were talking about this in the context of Cabin in the Woods, which tries to get the audience to... It interrogate itself, right? To, to to kind of recognize our own involvement with it. Um, like films are incredibly popular, right? <laughs> right? The films films make huge amounts of money, um, and there is there is something that I like. I say I don't think Hanukkah is is just kind of like scolding people for enjoying violent movies, but he's trying to get people to think about what is it about those films which is so appealing what is the kind of libidinal economy of of violence of the slasher killer you know what what is what is what is it that audiences respond to and are drawn to and i think this film raises some very kind of like troubling questions because i think for some people the the absence of that structuring base narrative this you know they're doing it for this reason um, actually makes the film kind of uh, harder to to watch in a way because it refuses to allow the audience a reason to excuse it, right? You can think that John Kramer does horrible things, but then the film the films spend hours upon hours upon hours creating this kind of like increasingly convoluted mythology about why he's doing it so that you can watch, you know, uh, people get uh, their heads torn apart and kind of have... A, a reasoned epistemology that you can place all of this into um, that allows you to kind of create a distance between yourself and the text. Um, and because they go, you know, whatever, whatever story I told you, you, I tell you, you'd know wasn't true. You kind of have to go, okay, then why am I as an audience member here? Yeah, I, I, f I find this to be really interesting, too, because, you know, looking at Saw or like any of our other, you know, like torture slasher killer types. The fact that they have a backstory not only allows us to apply that kind of layer of distance, right? It also gives us an avenue to sympathize with them. Right. Yes. Like we, we can talk about like like Michael Myers is a great example. Like we could talk about how Michael Myers is treated in the context of mental health. 
you know, there, there, there are avenues to sympathy with, with all of these kind of, uh, you know, killers with a backstory, right? And that, as an audience member, it allows us to make YouTube videos like, was the Saw Killer correct? Um, and like that, that kind of thing. But with funny games, that, that does not exist. You, yeah. We just have their actions. There, there is no way to sympathize with these two characters there we are offered nothing like we don't even know if their dynamic is because we know nothing about them right they have this established power dynamic right yeah. where where one appears to be the manipulator who's in charge of everything uh but we don't know the truth of that at all you know that that could be part of the like they're playing a funny game that could be part of their funny game like that dynamic could in and of itself be part of the lie uh, and I think there is that that reflects on how the audience relates to the text as well, because so I've written about this a long time ago, but I kind of made the argument that let, let's say the kind of first wave of horrors of, of slashes specifically spent an awful lot of time with protagonists and characters because they wanted an emotional investment on the part of the audience so that when people actually did start getting chopped up, you you felt threatened by it. Um, and the kind of remakes and reimaginings and revivals spend an awful lot of time with the killers because it tended to focus upon the spectacle. So really, uh, as an audience member, uh, you were encouraged to, if not kind of cheer on, then at least identify and invest in... Um, the people who are who are kind of there to to uh give you the goods as it were um and i think what's super interesting about this film is the way in which it gives you ways in which you can kind of invest in and identify with our protagonists and the ways that you are encouraged to identify with the antagonists right yeah yeah no i i think that's that's like a this is a central thing about horror, right? Like we're, we're forced into this space, you know, part of, part of the uncomfortability is often the fact that we're rooting for the monster. Yeah, um, exactly. And I, I absolutely love how this movie gives you nothing when it comes to, to potentially rooting for these two, right? There's no tragic backstory. There's no, yep. there, there's no, there's no meaningful motivation that you could possibly hook into for what they're doing. They're just doing it. And, and I think what's important is like, I would contrast this with a movie like Natural Born Killers. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where there, where there are two, where there's serial killers, but they're doing it, for, like they're doing it for no, no real reason. But they're just, they're, but that is the reason, right? They're, they're almost like doing this Joker thing. Yeah. You know, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm doing all this crime and all this murder because everything is pointless and nothing needs a reason. Which, in and of itself, that's an ontology, right? Like that's a reason for doing what you're doing that that's a philosophical framework for your actions our killers and funny games don't even have that they don't even have this kind of anti-framework for mm. for their their kind of spree that they're on it's just happening but at the same time the film does sort of encourage encourage you in some very subtle ways to be kind of disappointed when they're not there Mm -hmm. uh, mo mostly mostly through making the film kind of a bit boring uh like the opening 20 minutes are not especially sort of involving and um that 
that long, very glacial-paced sequence just after they leave the house for the first time, you you kind of go, oh well, it feels like the movie's ended because because the people who are the 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 catalysts of this have gone. So even though you don't have that kind of reason structurally, formally, the film is sort of like nudging you a little bit to being like, oh, I kind of, you know, they were the interesting ones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that that is interesting as well, too, because I think that all depends on, like, because I walked into this movie knowing what kind of movie it was, right? That this is, this is like, a horror movie with some kind of, like, slasher killer, serial killer types at the helm, you know? And yeah. and so in those, in those moments that are really slowly paced, you know, like, you feel a lot for the family, right? Because you know, you know what's coming. You've seen these type of movies before. You know how this goes, right? It's, it's, it's that line, you know, we can't break the rules, right? You know how the game is played. And I think that those, those scenes become much more interesting in that context, you know, cause like other, uh, I, know, I know that Haneke has resisted calling this a horror movie and leaning into it as a horror title but it's nevertheless in dialogue with the rest of like, you know, slasher cinema. And I think like so many slasher movies, you, you got to keep the beats going. You know, you got you got to have these paced out kills that escalate in violence and intensity and action. And you got to move in that direction. And this movie does that a little bit, um, but it's so much more subdued. And so many of the beats are missed on purpose. There's so much like if this was a painting, there'd be so much white space in here. This is how the, how the film is using white space. Yes, absolutely. Um, like the phrase that kind of popped into my head, it was, it's only a movie, right? It's only a movie. So it, in the first, first act, first half, you know, when you watch these people go through all of these awful things, you're like, it's only a film, right? It's only a film. It's fine. And then you allow yourself to kind of get some sort of hope uh, that Anne especially might be the one who makes it out. But of course, it's only a movie, right? You, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's only, and you know what kind of movie it was. So it, it, I, think, I think that double meaning of like, oh, it's only a movie. It's not real. It means, and then at the end, well, it's only a movie. So there was never any hope to begin with because it's a movie that plays to certain generic rules and expectations and, and formula is something that this film kind of constructs really cleverly. And it's so subtle. We've said that a lot, but I think if it was a little more overblown, it, all of this would come off as kind of hokey. Um, it would come off as kind of like slightly ridiculous. But because because the film is so restrained, right, uh, there's, even, there's even this version of, of Chekhov's gun, right? Um, or in this case, Chekhov's knife. Uh, which is maybe one of my favorite things about the ending, where where you're like, oh, she's she's gonna get like, oh, they set that up. The the knife is on the boat, and she's gonna, and they just spot it and just throw it away, and like, nope. Yep. <laughs> it's it's so cruel. It's so it's so sort of like spiteful right at the end. It's just an extra little twist to go. It's only a movie. Why did you possibly think there would be any hope whatsoever? <laughs> And, and I, I really like that, you know, and th- this ties into the end, too, where they're talking about the the space between the, you know, the fantastic and the real. And I think like yeah, you know, yeah, Zizek, yeah. Zizek even talks about this, right? Like mo- movies aren't 
unreal. Movies are more real than the reality in which we live, right? There's a hyper reality to cinema and, and that creates a lot of deep uncomfortability here, right? Like this movie is giving us insight into our world that like the, the supposedly realistic news media can't give us. Yeah. And yeah. the way that this movie kind of has this discourse about reality and fiction I think is is one of my favorite parts about it. Well, like let's talk about that. Let's talk about because you know we've said that this is this is a film about violence, or rather, it's a film about the kind of psychological impacts of violence. Um, but this is not. I think there's there's a really there's a really important distinction between how kind of media frame violence and how this film specifically frames violence, and the kind of cinematic language that's being used here as opposed to how other kinds of media um, present violence to the audience. Um, yeah, I think that's really, that's at the heart of, of what is going on in, in this film, is how we're looking at violence and how we're talking about violence, especially in this, like, it's televisual media that we're watching, right? You know, like, the, the space between the cinematic and news visual news is much 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 smaller than than i think we'd be comfortable with normally believing right like the the medium has to construct narratives and it's it has to use the language of cinema in order to do those right it, and it's also on top of that it's drawing from the shared pool of of cultural tropes and assets with which to construct these identities right this film is interrogating that about as aggressively as you can without skipping into becoming something a bit more a trauma movie, right? Like you, you could, you could do this dialed up to 11 as like trauma lambasting the way that the media talks about violence. Um, but this is the, this is like the dial it down to negative one. This is the much more like haunting, subtle and slow way of doing that. Um, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think what's so important and interesting about this film is just how much isn't shown and how much is just removed. I think what you said, you know, if this was, this was a painting, there'd be tons of white space um, is, is really accurate. Um, like even even the the moment where Tim Roth gets gets his knee broken, it's it's framed so that his his knee is literally just out of frame. Um, so like there's literally no uh, uh, kind of like everything that happens to them happens literally just like out of the line of your of your vision if your eye is the camera right. And the whole point of, again, and again, it's about subverting that expectation, right? The, the whole point of the slasher killer is that the violence is, is on screen. You know, oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. The, the, ca the camera is the eye of the killer as, as they're, you know, chasing, chasing the, 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 the final girl through the woods. But all of this, the camera is just, it's just out of eyeline, all of this violence, right? It's, it's, you never get the spectacle all you are left to deal with and confront with is the the psychological and emotional impact of it. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's completely correct. And like the rare moments of violence we do see on screen, like these the single most violent thing that we are visually exposed to in this movie is is one of our killers getting, you know, blown to pieces with a shotgun. But that's that that's completely taken back. And it's taken back in like the most cartoonish way possible. You know, one of one of the killers grabs a TV remote and just rewinds it. You know, like that's something out of like a, a bad that, that is like literally something out of a bad Adam Sandler movie. Like yeah. like like that's a bad gag. That's a bad setup. You know, oh, you got and, the magic TV remote. You can go back. So like the one moment of 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 gore in, in serious killing that we're exposed to is encapsulated within this movie's break of the fourth wall in a very like openly silly way. Yeah. Um, and uh, but. I think the 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 kind of moment that brought this home for me was um, NASCAR. Let's talk about NASCAR. Oh yes, please. Um, look, I don't know a huge amount about it, but frankly, it strikes me as a, as a sport or a contest that exists only on the possibility of like violent catastrophe. Right? It's not like it's not like the courses are particularly complex. You're driving around and. and in big oval <laughs> right <laughs> the the whole thrill of it isn't like oh how amazing are the drivers uh at, at controlling their cars through this incredibly complex course it's like how well can they avoid the possibility of fiery immolation and death um i i don't know it, it i i am i am not an american so you, you're gonna have to tell me if i'm being kind of unfair here it's very it's a very interesting sport in the way that it is situated in what happens to everything inside of American history, right? Stock car racing in America, like this, this grows out of prohibition, right? So you have you have uh, liquor bootleggers, especially in Appalachia, who would soup up their cars as much as possible so that they could outrun government agents who are trying to bust them for selling legal booze. Uh, and then eventually, especially as prohibition lifts and ends, and like now you've got this culture and this technology built around taking stock cars and making them incredibly fast. What do you do with it? Well, you race them. It's the logical thing to do next, right? You built cars to go faster than cars the other guy had. So now you race each other instead of racing the government. And then we start to see this this transition slowly happen where like NASCAR retains some of this like cultural legacy, right? Like the common NASCAR joke is non-athletic sports centered around rednecks. Um, but like the cultural meaning of redneck has changed. It's no longer like yeah. organized radical left mining labor. You know, it's now like g- generically someone who's like a hillbilly or Southern or from a rural area and has those cultural affects. Like it's, it's been washed. And I think NASCAR's had that happen to it, right? This, this kind of car culture in America has been, washed from its historic roots from its like uh you know like anti prohibition roots you know and it's become it's it's been re- reabsorbed into capitalism and it's become this like multi-million dollars entertainment complex right yeah exactly and it's um, it's yeah. become it's become so maybe i i admit i was being a little unfair but it's become a kind of flat spectacle right yes yes um, and it's so, it's very telling. I think that that's playing on the TV and you have the shot of the TV that's covered in blood from where 
Georgie has just been presumably shot in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is this this flattening of spectacle, and again, this kind of collapsing of the distinctions between you know reality and fiction. You know, NASCAR is a real sport. Its its accidents are are real catastrophes. Um, the the violence there is maybe closer to the surface than the violence of a of a of a sport with different class connotations like golf, but it's still there, mm-hmm. and it just becomes it becomes a backdrop for these kind of funny games that are playing out on the screen. And I think one of the really interesting things about having that NASCAR clip playing is either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, the, the the filmmakers line up NASCAR which has lost a lot of its cultural memory, right? Like the, the, this kind of, it, it's become a, another sport for rich people. You know, it, it's gone from being this like thing poor people did out of necessity because it was how to make money and, and just get by and survive to, to uh, a sport that rich people participate in and poor people spectate. Um, yes. And which I, I think that lack of cultural memory maps onto what's going on in the film so well, right? Like this kind of like this, this like lake district that they're living in, these, these opulent homes on this tiny lake in their yachts and the golfing and like the, the fact that no one clear, no one here is, is, is very clearly worried about where their money's coming from or what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. These, these people like they're, they're upper class, you know, and like, so there, there's the, in, in the dialogue of the movie itself, which parallels the dialogue of NASCAR, there's this hidden memory. There's this thing that's been taken away, right? We've lost the memory of, oh, whose yeah. land is this actually? Where is their money coming from? What is the real violence going on here? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. And I think uh, once again, it's asking really interesting questions of the audience, the spectator, because spectatorship generally implies passivity. And I think my impression is that Hanukkah thinks that that's just an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> like it, that's, that's something, Oh, Oh, you're just watching, you know, you just, it's like, mm, but if you weren't there to watch that, would this spectacle be unfolding in front of you? Would it be inf- unfolding at all? And I think I think there's like to to go back to the the connective strands between uh, like n- like televisual news media and cinema. We we see ourselves as like passive observers in cinema very often. This this thing happens on a screen in front of us, and we we absorb it. But we're active participants in the shaping of that meaning, right? Like in the in the Mile High Horror Salon, like I was talking about the Babadook kind of emerging as like a fixture at pride parades, you know? Like we are active in the making of the meaning of movies, you know? Like it's entirely possible that a reality could have happened where like nobody picked up on queer subtext in the Babadook and the Babadook never emerged in this way. You know, like that was actively done and shaped by people reacting to the text. And the the same is true about news media. You know, like news media, we passively absorb what the people on the TV are saying or what the people on Twitter are saying. But we're active participants in the shaping of these meanings and the asking of these questions. Right. And I think that this movie is like 
all of our opening shots of the family that we're about to spend like two hours watch get tortured and killed they're they're like you know this kind of like bird's eye view like they're these godlike ways of watching people you know we're hovering silently over them where we're peering at these really awkward and intimate angles in the vehicle where we're hearing and seeing whatever we want and I, th- I think that that's a it's it jars with the rest of the movie that has much more realistic and personal uh, eye level cinematography. Yeah, and of course, you're directly addressed as an as an audience member, mm-hmm. right? You, you are involved in some in some way. Way where Paul go, goes, what about you? You want to you want to see a, a proper ending, don't you? You know, with with plot. What is it? Character development, and it's like. Uh, yeah, because otherwise you would think it was it was a quote unquote bad movie um, if it didn't fit fit those standards. And then when you you still get denied that right at the end. Um, what what do you think about the ending? So I, I there's so much to say about the ending of of this film. I love their little conversation about fiction versus reality and how those two don't don't have clear boundaries right because like i mean like they make a a lot of zizek's points in like two sentences at the end where like fictitious objects exist within reality and therefore are real you know like sure gandalf you can't like invite gandalf out to the bar or something you know not not extant in that sense but like to say that Lord of the Rings isn't real for this random example, I'm bringing up Lord of the Rings to say that Lord of the Rings isn't real is just a mistake. You know, it, yeah, it, it's, a, ca- it is it's real. a category error. It's a, yes, it's a yes. mistake. And you go, well, you can't invite Gandalf to the bar. Therefore it's like, well, that's to misunderstand what kind of thing fictional characters are. <laughs> and I think the ending is, the ending is just great. It's, it's so horrible. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's, yep. It's so kind of casually uh, cruel um, because they make a bet. They make a bet um, uh, that, what is it, by by nine in the morning, all of them will be dead. Uh, and they go out on the boat at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then Paul just uh, throws her into the sea, uh, into the lake and lets her drown. And the reason is... Um, just 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 the reason that you might give if you w- stopped watching a movie too soon he's getting kind of hungry and it was a bit boring so mm-hmm. uh, and and Anne's death is so kind of unceremonious um as all of them are um i, I yeah i i love it it's 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 horrible it's deeply it's deeply unfair but that's kind of the whole point <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's the, the, the whole point too. Is I, I, I totally agree with this, right? Like, we we go to these kinds of movies in part to spectate upon horrifying violence, right? Like this, this saw to again, like because critics want to invoke comparisons to quote unquote torture porn, so let's do it. Like the kill, the, the tortures and the kills in Saw could have been like just m- as mundane as humanly possible, right? But no, they're like these, like, it's like Rube Goldberg machines of of human destruction, you know, just these hyper elaborate, like, escape room puzzles and traps, you know, like, to to the level of like, some of them are just like, actively hilarious as to how bizarre they are. And and this Uh, movie, so weird, 
Yeah, and this movie is like, okay, like, like that's what you're going to expect, right? That's what you're primed for in this kind of cinema. Or you're going to get something like Scream, you know, where there's just like buckets of blood and people getting stabbed left and right and lots of dramatic monologues and, and motivation. This movie takes all of that away from you. You know, like like no one no one dies in this movie in a way that respects them as characters at all. Everyone dies off camera and quietly and in the background, you know, like because that's this movie is calling into question, like what the hell we're doing here as audience audience members. And maybe maybe that's where we can go next. What, what do you think this movie is trying to do? I, I think it's trying to make people into better, more aware audience members. Um, and like, you know, we talked about this film for a long time and maybe, maybe you've never seen it and you're going to watch it and you're going to find it to be pretentious rubbish. Fine. I think, you know what, you can even make an argument that that's the case. Um, but I also think that if you take it seriously and engage with it on the level that it kind of demands of you, it sort of, to me anyway, I think this film is, is, is genuinely about what what does it mean to 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 be a watcher what does it mean to be an audience member you know what kind of what kind of uh ethical and moral questions do, do, does does film basically try and draw a fictionality curtain over and this um film basically pulls away that kind of comfort and forces you to actually reckon with with the the ethics of spectatorship you know, the ethics of watching people play their funny little games. What about you? What do you think? Um, yeah, so I, I think that's really interesting, right? And I think that's some of the... Uh, I, I completely agree, right? Like, th this movie is trying to correct cinematic viewership. It's, it's trying to take away some of that learned passivity we have when we watch movies right this movie is trying to get you to ask questions about the movie by making huge chunks of the movie just a little incoherent and 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 on top of that breaking a lot of the spectacle right like you know i i, I was watching this i was thinking about like some other attempts at like because there's another way to go with this, right? Like you make a spectacle that's so graphic, it becomes uncomfortable to watch. Mm, yeah. But I, I question as to how possible that is, you know, because at the end of the day, we're dealing with cinema. We're dealing with actors and contracts and special effects artists and, and, and craft, you know, and like you could make an intensely graphic spectacle of a movie, but it, 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 there's always the risk that it gets subsumed by the spectacle. Saw is an intensely graphic and gory series of movies that are ridiculous pop culture fodder now. They, they get parodied, they, they get turned into cute little references and toys and like... You, you kind of can't escape that machinery by leaning into it, but you can escape it. Like you're, you're never going to get like, or I shouldn't never say never, but it, it would be much less successful to, to get like the line of funny games, Funko pop. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think b by deliberately making the violence obscured or happening just off screen, not only does, it kind of highlight the emotional intensity of what we're seeing, but 
it refuses the kind of spectacularization of the discourse, right? It, it makes you confront it on a kind of cognitive uh, level rather than a affective or emotional one. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's really really important too. Like this this movie guts its own spectacle. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's almost this like violence of cinematography that goes on within the movie in terms of generic conventions, where the film is eviscerating itself. It's appearing to us as this hollow bag of a film by mm-hmm. by taking out everything we would expect. In, in this kind of movie, right? And our, and our slasher killers too, like they don't have like, they're, they're wearing Converse uh, sneakers and just kind of your generic yacht uniform. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and, and there's no, a more, a more true to form slasher or horror movie. At some point they would have needed to transform into their killer personas, right? They would have had to have, in a uniform, an outfit, like they would have put on their freaky masks or like switched out yeah, yeah. into a uniform, right? They would have had icons, symbols for themselves, right? They don't, you know, and like the and the way they wield everything around them, including their outfits, disengages with that kind of spectacle, right? The golf club could have become symbolic for them as killers, but it doesn't. It's just this object of opportunity that's around them. And I think that the way that this movie is constantly picking apart what we want in these types of movies, what we've been taught to want in these types of movies, is part of its larger dialogue in in kind of making us as audience members a bit less like like little babies in cribs watching the movie just kind of like as a mobile above us just spinning, right? This movie wants you to kind of like wake up and, and engage again. Yeah, it's like it's like the opening to Bo Burnham's new special, uh, Inside, which starts with a song where he says, like, Daddy made you some content, so open wide, here it comes. It's like, that's, you know, we're just like, mm, yes, feed me the content that does not, requ- <laughs> that, that does not require anything of me. Um, and, and this film, yeah, this, this, this film is like a, a, a cold glass of water <laughs> and a kind of like, a reminder that you, as as a as a viewer, as someone who can can and should critically engage with art, are capable of doing more with art, doing more with film than just being a passive consumer of it. Ab- absolutely. So, do you have do you have any closing thoughts for our? I think this is going to be the longest episode we've ever done. Um, it's really good. It's a, it's a really good movie. It's a really well made movie. It's incredibly well thought out. Um, it's, it, it won't be for everybody. I think that's fair to say, but then like no film is and no film really should be. And I think there might be people who, um, who have watched some of the other stuff that we recommend and then watch this and hate it. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate response, but I found it one of the most, interesting films that we've talked about on this show for a very long time. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I kind of struggle to, to articulate how I feel about it emotionally. Um, you know, it's not one of those ones where I'm going to be, like, Oh, I love that movie. I think it's incredibly interesting and I think it's really good. Um, and I would love to hear what more people think about it. What about you? 
I, I agree. Yeah. Like I, I don't really have like an emotive response to this film, right? It didn't like fill me with fear or stir great sorrow or joy or anything. Like it's not that kind of a movie, you know, like this, this movie is interested in much more, I think intellectual responses than it is an emotive response. You know, it's a different yeah. kind of, of horror film. Um, and I think that would be that would be my closing statement. So I think that now now this means we're in our questions section of the episode where we ask you, our listeners, the viewer of this piece of cinema, important movie questions. Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Gee, Just brilliant. Uh, yes, so some questions uh, for people to kind of think about or to, to, to answer, to talk about, uh, either on the Discord or on Twitter. Um, what do you think about this uh, relationship between, um, as we said earlier in, in, in the episode, at the ethics of, of aesthetics and, and, and horror movies? How do we think about representation and, and what it's for? Um, what about you, Ash? What are your questions? So my my big question for this one is what happens when we take the lessons of this movie, what this movie is trying to get us to do about violence and, and physical spe- and, and visual spectacles and apply them to other horror movies? What happens when we take the lessons from this movie and bring them back to Halloween or use them on Saw? And as a further, a further movement on that one, what happens when we take the lessons of this movie and apply it to what we see on Twitter and Facebook or news media on YouTube or something like CNN, MSNBC, Fox. Uh, what, what happens when we take the lessons that this movie is trying to get us about our passivity as viewers and violence as spectacle and use them on media that we would consider more real than cinema, even though that that is not necessarily the truth? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, as always, please do let us know your answers. If you would like a chance to discuss this with other people who listen to the show, if you would like early access to what we uh, release and a whole bunch of fun bonuses, please do join uh, the Horror Vanguard Discord, which you get access uh, to through patreon.com slash horrorvanguard for just a couple of bucks a month. But thank you so much for... for uh, this incredible birthday spectacular. Thank you so much for listening and stay spooky, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 